Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Sad Sack Private Grant Shops, otherwise known as Green and Sundry Other Aliases, in his inglorious business career before becoming Britain's Defence Secretary, has never heard a shot fired in anger. Not even on a hunt. He's not got the class to be on a hunt. Well, he threatened Russia yesterday that Britain was going to put soldiers into Ukraine and the Royal Navy was going to somewhere find ships to send into the naval encounters against the Russian naval forces. Today, Corporal Rishi Sunak beleaguered in Liverpool Demonstrators surrounding the Conservative Party conference slapped private shaps stroke green down and said he'd just made it all up. It was absolute rubbish. In a second shot for NATO, the anti-NATO candidate wins the general election in Slovakia. Now NATO has more than one opponent inside its ranks. And We'll be looking at the New York City thug, Jamal Bowman, the man who talked about the hallowed halls of Congress in relation to January 6th, wrecking the joint, pulling the fire alarm, all to avoid a vote. Oh, and we've got the former wife of the greatest, the champion, Muhammad Ali. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. And we've got a potentially record-breaking poll also. Should gender reassignment for children be a criminal offence? Yes or no? 20,000 people have already voted and the show has just begun. Get your vote in now, yes or no, on my Telegram channel, on my Twitter feed on the YouTube community stream or on the YouTube stream that you may well be watching. Do you remember they said that the January 6th protesters had desecrated the hallowed halls of the US Congress? Do you remember the hushed tones with which they described uh, these bison-hatted, bead-wearing buffalo soldiers strolling through the corridors of the US Congress, well get this, a Democratic Party congressman, a man I've just seen behaving in a way that you no longer see outside bars in Sockey Hall Street in Glasgow, whilst berating another member of Congress, a name that you may not yet be familiar with outside of the United States, but a former member of the squad, a man who was supposed to be a political progressive in order to save Joe Biden's budget, including 
gigantic tranches of new money for weapons for the Kiev regime in the war in Ukraine, he actually triggered a fire alarm. He broke the glass and pulled the string or whatever they have in Washington, D.C., in order to create a fire emergency, placing people at risk, sending the fire department hard-pressed in New York City, as he should know, no less hard-pressed in Washington, D.C., triggering them onto an emergency footing, all to avoid a vote which might have cost Biden's budget for war, weapons, missiles, and bombs. There he is there on my screen now. This thug should no longer be serving in the US Congress. It is not just a crime in the United States, it is a felony in the United States to unlawfully and unwarrantedly trigger a fire alarm and a fire emergency, akin to shouting fire in a darkened cinema. This man is not fit to wear the clothes of an American congressman and should be drummed out of office. Unless they were being hypocritical about the January 6th affair, do you think that's even remotely possible that that could be true? But that was the least of the setbacks for NATO over this weekend. The biggest of them was undoubtedly uh, the stunning defeat suffered by the pro-American, pro-NATO, pro-Ukrainian regime in Slovakia. They were defeated by a man whose campaign was based around his first act, which he promised would be the immediate and complete cessation of all aid, military and economic, from Slovakia to the kleptocratic regime in Kiev. He said the Soviet Union liberated us from the Nazis. It's time to show Russia some respect. He's being described by a series of hysterics in the media as pro-Putin, pro-Russian, apparently Putin has done it again, influenced the outcome of yet another poll in yet another country, having elected Donald Trump in the first place. Now he's picking the prime ministers in Slovakia. Well, this is a major problem for the EU and for NATO, because this man has a veto. This man can veto EU decisions. This man can veto NATO decisions. And allied with the Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, there is now a significant blocking mechanism for those who wish to give away the economic future of Europe's children and grandchildren to the creep Zelensky is now in grave danger. Their majority has gone. We have a mover and we have a seconder for an alternative point of view. This is very significant indeed. And in Britain, we, forgive us, had the most significant victory for us of all. There's a man called Grant Shapps, whom I've been lampooning on radio and television 
for the best part of 20 years since he entered my field of vision as Grant Shapps. Uh, huckster is how you would describe him. In the Second World War, he'd have been called a spiv. He's a man with a motley business career behind him, a business career littered in failure and falsification. He was caught falsifying his name. That's right. Britain has a defense secretary who habitually and for self-interested reasons pretended to be someone else. A Michael Green is the name that has stuck in my mind, but there were actually multiple aliases under which he sought to conduct business. In fact, in an early sign of the times, sometimes when he was signing letters, he was a woman. He was identifying as a woman, not Michelle Moon, but something not dissimilar. If you get my drift, British viewers will understand. This man ended up as a conservative MP, though he could well have ended up in many other places. But he ended up as a conservative MP and then held more government offices than almost anyone in history in the dog days of the Boris Johnson uh, and Liz Truss administration. I've lost track of how many ministerial posts he's had, but he was then shunted to the periphery by Rishi Sunak. And then when the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, he of the Battle of Balaclava, stepped down from office inexplicably, Rishi Sunak sent for Grant Shapps, Michael Green, Michel Mohn et al. And no one could quite understand it. Some thought it was a subversive move to undermine Britain's military. After all, which of the officer class is going to take orders willingly from this little twerp, this little spiv? But others thought, well, it's a sign that he's downgrading the importance of the war and the importance of Britain's contribution to it. But the thing about a spiv is he loves the attention. And so this particular spiv yesterday told the Daily Telegraph, the Conservative Party's paper of record, that alone of all the NATO countries, officially, Britain was going to send its armed forces, who could all fit into Villa Park in Birmingham, by the way, in total, Army, Navy, and Air Force, he was going to send them boots on the ground and all into Ukraine to train the Ukrainians, don't you know? They need, they're badly in want of our training. That's why they're doing so well in the war. And not only that, he threatened to send the Royal Navy into naval encounters with the nuclear-armed Russian Navy. Now, I was a member of parliament for many decades, representing a naval shipbuilding yard. I was forever agitating for the Royal Navy to be brought up to strength and for the shipyard in my constituency to build the resulting ships. 
So I keep a weather eye on the Royal Navy. And the last time I looked, Britain's Navy cannot police the English Channel, where thousands of people cross illegally into Britain to be shipped to four-star hotels forever, perhaps, at the British taxpayer's expense. The Royal Navy is unable to stop them. But we're going to fight the Russian Navy in the Black Sea. This ranks up there with the most unbelievable statements made by Ben Wallace that he was going to avenge his regiment's ignominy when they were slaughtered at the Battle of Balaclava in the Crimean War more than 150 years ago. Ben was still smarting uh, from the uh, march of the, the ride of the 600th into the Russian guns. But Grant Shapps has outdone himself, I thought, when I thought of Britain's emaciated Royal Navy with two aircraft carriers that are non-functioning being sent to fight the Russian Navy. Now, I was just getting over the shock of this and trying to look on the bright side that this would surely be the end of Grant Shapp's military career. The first time a Russian missile landed on top of the British soldiers, that would surely be it. When out came Rishi Sunak, believe it or not, Britain's Prime Minister, as Joe Biden put it, go figure. Rishi Sunak told the world in public that Shapps was talking through his hat that no British soldiers would officially be sent into Ukraine. The idea that there are none there already in secret is, of course, entirely fanciful. But an actual deployment, officially, of British soldiers in Ukraine would be the beginning of World War III. An engagement between the emaciated Royal Navy and the Russian Navy would be, it would be like the Yangtze incident when the fledgling Chinese Navy in 1949 sank the Sapphire. It would be a humiliation for Britain's armed forces. And that's presumably why Rishi Sunak has countermanded Private Grant Shapps's orders. If not, a resignation from Mr. Green Shapps, surely a sacking is now in order. Britain's armed forces may be small, but they are highly skilled and professional people. They are people that are devoted to their country. They are people that we would rely on to defend us, were anyone to attack us, they deserve better than Grant Shapps, don't they? Let me have your point of view. Now, coming up very soon, we have the former wife of Muhammad Ali. That's not all she's done in her life. Of course, she's an actress, an author, as well as being the author of one or two of the finest bon mots ever uttered by the most eloquent, articulate sportsman that has ever lived on planet Earth. 
And so to set the scene, I thought I'd tell just a couple of personal anecdotes. My father, God rest his soul, was the only person I knew, and all the people I knew when Cassius Clay, as he then was, took the World Heavyweight Boxing Championship, were all white people. And none of them liked Clay Ali. None of them. In fact, many of them hated him. He was the Louisville lip. He was a black man that didn't lower his eyes. And when white people talked to him, he was a black man who could not only outfight anybody else, but outtalk them and look much prettier than them whilst doing so. So I got up in the middle of the night when I was nine years old to watch Cassius Clay whop the big ugly bear Sonny Liston and become the heavyweight champion of the world and declare somewhat over the top, screaming over the ropes, I am the greatest, I am the prettiest. And he was the greatest and the prettiest. And so I followed Ali in wonder, in admiration and love as he fought a series of contenders and then fought his biggest ever battle against the United States government, which in order to close his mouth, maybe for good, decided to conscript him and send him to fight in Vietnam. Ali refused to fight them Viet Cong, as he put it. He said this war is about white, man, white men sending black men to kill red men to kill, he made, he bamboozled them completely with a series of statements that were in themselves incontestable. That this was a government that was conscripting overwhelmingly black fighters and many white ones too, many Latino ones too, to go and kill yellow men in the paddy fields of Vietnam when those Yellow men, as Ali put it, had never done him any harm. As he put it, and we'll discuss this in just a minute with his former wife, no Viet Cong ever called me the N-word. But of course, many in the United States had done so. When Ali came home from the Olympic Games, literally wearing the Olympic gold medal that he had won for the US Olympic team, he tried to enter a restaurant in his home city of Louisville, Kentucky, and was told that people like him were not served in this restaurant, at which point he went to a bridge over the river in the city and tossed his Olympic gold medal away. It was, I think, a turning point for him. But I've only got time to tell you about what remains the greatest epiphany of my entire life. Having followed Ali all these years, I was at a Labour Party conference in Blackpool when he had his most legendary 
of all his many legendary fights against George Foreman. I got up again in the middle of the night and went to a cinema because that's the only way you could watch boxing then. Closed circuit cinema in Blackpool. And I watched, there it is there, as Ali roped the dope, soaked up the punishment, and then in a flurry that will never ever be forgotten, came off the ropes, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, down, went the Colossus that was George Foreman, the world's most fearsome and heavy puncher. And as Ali raised his arms, having won the world title yet again, and never in my whole life, before or since, experienced a sense of epiphany quite like that one. That's why I'm particularly happy that my guest is Dr. Halala Camacho Ali, actress, author, and former wife of Muhammad Ali. And by the way, she's just as eloquent as he was. Stay tuned. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. I've met Dr. Ali before on a previous television show that I had, which will remain nameless for reasons of algorithmic suppression. And I know for a fact, she is the brightest and the best. And she's just finished her new book on her former husband, Muhammad Ali. How lucky are we, Dr. Ali, uh, to see you here again this time on the mother of all talk shows. It is simply wonderful to see you, resplendent as ever. Uh, tell us, first of <laughs> all, about the book. What's it called? Where can we get it? And what period does it cover? Well, uh, it's good to see you, Mr. Galloway. You are amazing. You still look very dashing, as usual. You age. Thank you. Beautifully. You're so handsome with the little peach fuzz. That's nice. That's a good look. <laughs> Before you had nothing but on your face. You was uh, clean, smooth, and now you look a little mature gentleman now. <laughs> you look good. You look good, Mr. Calloway. You look great. I love your topics, your shows. You're amazing. 
Thank you. If Muhammad Thank Ali you, was man. here, he would say, man, you trying to be prettier than me? <laughs> <laughs> that could yeah. never happen. So and good. neither as eloquent as he. I mean, you were married to one of the most handsome and eloquent men. And if you put those two things together, the most handsome, eloquent man ever to walk God's earth. That's really something. Yeah, I like the pretty boys. I like the pretty boys. <laughs> but uh, this is the thing. Uh, it's, it took a long time for me to finally put the book together. It, it took a lot of uh, pain, um, a lot of um, hurt, uh, things I had to heal. I'm, my, that's why I didn't do it before, during his period, because... Divorce is never a nice thing. It's not a good thing. Um, it's something that's very unexpected. I I wanted to be married to him for the rest of my life, but things change, and I understand that. And it took a lot of time. The only thing about it is, is that during our divorce, um, I decided to just be friends and forgive each other for whatever we've done to each other, that was um, very hard to get over. But uh, I decided, I said, look, man, we need to stay friends. We have beautiful children. We're going to stay friends no matter what. And so we did. We, we he, he accepted that and said, uh, yes, we're going to stay friends. You better be careful because we might get my might fall in love again. I said, no, 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 no. It's, it, it, it's what it is. It's going to be okay. We have our four children. So it was a beautiful time with us because it was around his career. I was there for him in his hard, trying times. And uh, it was just a beautiful relationship. It was a Cinderella story. I've been exposed to so many people and so much wisdom. And it's because of our friendship and our bondage that we had together that nobody will ever be able to understand. This is why the book is going to be covering the struggles that we went through together as a family. Uh, they say that Muhammad Ali uh, suffered and he went through this and he went through that, but he didn't do it alone. He was with us. So he had a family going through it with him. So I can say that I was happy to go through it with him, to be very supportive of him. And uh, we're going to keep the Ali legacy going because we made that legacy together as a family. And no matter what anybody when, says, I don't know. Nobody, you, no, well, yeah, you're, you're going to say something? I was going to ask, uh, what? When you first met him, did it remotely occur to you that Muhammad Ali would become the most famous person on the earth? Were you aware of how big a personality he was going to be? Well, I saw that, and he didn't see the big part of it. I saw, I saw a man that had potential. I saw a, a young man who um, had a lot of talent, and in order for him to survive this talent, 
being with uh, my religion and supporting him in that religion, I knew it would make him bigger than what he even dreamed he would be. Uh, yes, he had talent, but the controversial part is the where we came in at. He is uh, an expert when it comes to boxing. He had a certain style that nobody had. But so I saw that potential blooming into something bigger. And I mean world bigger. He didn't see what I saw. He said what he saw as being a great champion. But I saw something bigger of him being a humanitarian, a person who would influence others. And uh, that's what I focused on. And uh, see, a lot of people come to me and ask me, what is it like being married to this great Muhammad Ali? Well, you have to understand, he wasn't always that great the way he is now. He wasn't that great then. He had to grow into that. That took time. That took struggle. That took sacrifice. All of that came before what you see now today. So I was with him in a different caliber. He was a talented person. He was a, you know, very talkative, like you said, the Louisville up. But when he came with me, he had more to talk about other than just boxing. And that's yeah. why I stuck with the the guy. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, I do, uh, of course, was, I do, of course, uh, know what, what you mean. I, I made the point earlier, he had some very, very tough uh, opponents. George Foreman was oh, a very yes. tough guy. Joe Frazier was a very tough guy. Uh, he he fought uh, and beat. Uh, Sonny Liston was a very tough guy. He beat him twice, yeah. uh, stopped him twice. Yeah. Now, uh, any one of these, you would normally say, was his most fearsome opponent. But his biggest opponent was the U.S. government in the end, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the big one. That's the one I had to stand with him, by him with, and guide him through that. That's that's where I came in at. And uh, I was the tell voice us, behind tell us, the man. Tell us what I was that was the like. voice behind the man. Yeah, what was that like? Well, uh, especially when he uh, was... Uh, well, I told him... As a kid, I I understand that they had drafted him. And uh, before we married, he said, you know, um, I'm going to go to Vietnam. They said, I'm going to go to Vietnam, but I don't want to fight anybody. Uh, they said that it would be okay for me to fight like Joe Lewis fought for the, the army and everything, but fight in the ring like a boxer, like Joe Lewis did. And I said, that's not going to fly well. That 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 is not a good move. You shouldn't even sign your name on anything like that because you can't trust a, a, a person who don't uh, support you. Uh, so it's best not to sign your name at all. Don't even join in the Army because uh, my father is a veteran, was a veteran. And he said, you're not supposed to even draft people twice. Once they reject you once, you don't draft them twice. It was against the law to draft anybody twice. They drafted him twice so he could be an example. And I told him, do not sign and go to the Army. I know he didn't want to go to the Army to fight anybody. And I told him, I said, well, you know, the Vietnamese have never 
lied to you and treated you bad and uh, 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 hung you on a tree uh, uh, and said that you wasn't an a intelligent citizen of the, of the world. And this was, this is what the slave mentality had taught a lot of black people back in that, that day. And I said, man, don't sign your name on the paper. We're Muslims. We, we sacrifice our lives for our beliefs. And the best thing you could do is uh, not go, don't sign your name to go to the army to fight in a ring. You can't sign your name for anything. He said, really? I said, no. I said, uh, he said, what would you do if you was me? You already gave me a poem for Sonny Liston and I was only 13 then. And I told him and when I was 14, I said, you wanna know what I would do? I would say, hell no, I ain't gonna go. Clean out my cell, take me to jail without bail. Hell no, that's what I would do. But see, I didn't tell Clay to go out there and tell those people that he repeated everything I said, went and told those people, now I'd have created a monster. <laughs> so that was my feeling on it. And he believed whatever I felt and he would have put it out there because I influenced him to do that. I didn't tell him to do it, but he did it because he liked what he heard. And that's when it started a big controversy. And a lot of people don't know that about him and I. That's the thing. This is what this book is about, telling the little intricate things that inspired him. I was the one that inspired him to do things. And that's what he liked well, you about give me. Him, I inspired him. Huh? You give him some of his best uh, lines, and you've just quoted uh, one of them. They are hell no, I won't go. You, you, you also gave him other uh, now famous and at the time, incredibly electrifying. I mean, the things he said yeah. about why he wouldn't go to Vietnam. You are responsible right. for some of those best lines. Absolutely. Now, now, Absolutely. now that he's only watching from above, take some credit. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, you know, but, you know, when I look at me supporting him all these years, uh, I looked at us as a team. Whatever I said, he would say. I was very influential for him. And I was glad he listened to me. He listened to everything I said, and he, he liked what he heard, and he brought that out. And that was my whole intention, is to give him enough inspiration to bring it out. I didn't know he would actually do it, but he did. And the Sonny Liston thing, I was only like 13 when he called me and said, I'm going to, uh, we were just friends. You know, the, I, I was in the school of Elijah Muhammad, we were just friends. And um, uh, and I told him I didn't like Sonny Liston because he, before he even became a Muslim, Sonny Liston said he was gonna knock out that black Muslim. And that hurt my feelings. And I said, I don't like this guy. So I wrote a poem for Clay when he came back to the mosque. I wrote a poem for him and said, look, you tell this to Sonny Liston because I don't like him. And uh, and I wrote it on a brown paper bag. And my dad uh, saw me, I uh, saw Clay on TV with a brown paper bag, reading the poem. And then he asked, my father asked me, he said, did you give a fighter a, a poem to read uh, on a brown paper bag? I said, yeah. How did you find that out? And he said, well, he's on TV blazing away. So I go, what? And then I go and I see him with the brown paper bag, holding it up like this and reading it. And there was a little short poem. It was called, I Am the Greatest, that I wrote when I was 13. 
And the poem said, tell us. this is the legend of, how you want me to tell you the poem? <laughs> yes. You want me to tell you? This is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. This fist fights great. He's got speed and endurance. But if you're trying to sign to fight him, increase your insurance. This kid's got a left. This kid's got a right. Look at the kid carry the fight. Oh, the crowd is getting frantic. There's not enough room. They are laws the boom. That was the upgrade. Who would have thought when they came to the fight, they see a spook satellite? No one would dream when they put down their money. They see a total eclipse of the sun. You made my point famous. I thank you for that. <laughs> that is absolutely brilliant. Dr. Dr. Ali, how can people get the book? Can we pre-order oh, it? Oh, you can go on Amazon. Yeah, you can go on Amazon. Um, uh, I have a website that's getting ready to go up now and it's not up yet. It's called Mama Ali Speaks. No, Mama Ali at dot net mama ali dot net mama dot net it, it should be up in about uh a month but you can go to amazon and buy undefeated on amazon but it says undefeated not the other one it says undefeated so fantastic get talking that. to you as always and, i could you know uh, what, talk to uh, you George? all night but yeah <laughs> Yeah. Yes. You know, you know what, George, is another thing for me uh, is to make women aware because women do so much for their men and, and guide them and they should stick with them and support them. Don't run away. You know, just try to stick in there and try to support your man. Uh, men are beautiful factors. They make a lot of mistakes. Of course, we all do. But forgiveness is very important. Uh, you have to forgive and uh, try to be friends when you divorce because uh, it, it's just good for you. It's good for your soul. You have to forgive people. I mean, mm. I mean, I mean, I mean, thank you, doctor. Can I say one thing to you, George? Uh, I pray every day for the health, health uh, and safety for all people in America, especially in the Ukraine and in India, Libya, and all the countries that have had turmoil tragedies in, in the in the weather. And we are praying for everybody in the world for peace and uh, guidance and try to get closer to your creator. That's most important. People always following this person, following that person, have opinion about this person. Don't worry about that. The creator is in control of everything, and you have to stay connected to your creator and be at peace. Amen. Dr. Ali, yeah. thank you. God bless you. And uh, I hope that your latest book is an enormous success. You're certainly sold yes. a few copies on here this evening, I'm sure of that. Thank yes. you very much <laughs> indeed for joining us. Uh, that's a must-have book, I would say. Should gender reassignment for children be a criminal offense? Uh, yes or no? It's a simple question, really. And the answer is important because we have allowed a state of affairs to obtain in the darkness, in silence, because we were afraid to speak out and say no and say enough is enough. 
of this mania. It's time now for everyone to step up to the plate, as Muhammad Ali himself would have done. YouTube comments on Dr. Ali's interview. George Orange says, Ali did for boxing what Alex Higgins did for snooker and many other great sportsmen did for their sport. God bless them all. Amen. And Morpheus X says, give me one dark athlete or any athlete that would give up his career for justice of humanity against the mighty imperialist empire of the US. They robbed Ali the best age of his career in boxing for refusing to fight in Vietnam. And Toby Clear says, when Muhammad Ali decided to be true to his faith and refused to join the army, the wrath of an entire republic was visited on his head. He was stripped of his title and not allowed to work. The words of James Baldwin. An email from David. I too watched uh, the Rumble in the Jungle live from a cinema and realized very quickly that this would go down as the greatest sporting moment of all time. It is the greatest sporting moment of all time. I defy you to produce a greater one. The greatest athlete on the greatest stage at his greatest. Great show. I've never forgotten that cinema in Blackpool. And for those of you abroad, cinemas in Blackpool in those days, in the early 1970s. Well, we're not talking the Ritz here. One more email from John, really enjoying the interview with Dr. Khalila Camacho Ali. I grew up loving Ali and remember getting up as a child at all hours of the morning with my late dad to watch Ali fight. There's only two celebrities that I cried for at their passing, John Lennon and Muhammad Ali, John from Ireland. I never finished telling the anecdote, I think, that my father and I got up in the middle of the night and my father was the only white man in Britain, practically, who was supporting Ali. And I've never forgotten how we felt just a kid when Liston didn't come out of his corner to continue the fight and Ali became champion of the whole wide world. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Patreon.com forward slash George Galloway. I really depend on the people who support me in Patreon, and I'm deeply grateful to them. Uh, and they're growing now uh, really quite uh, significantly. So things are turning up for us, and I'm really glad and grateful about that. Please support us for the price of a cup of tea in an insalubrious cafe. If you can afford that per week, then please do it. 
patreon.com forward slash George Galloway. Jilly is one of the new patrons. Hi, George. Jilly from Australia. I love your podcast, and I'm glad I finally found your show so I can finally hear people like you and your guests speak what I am thinking. Thank you, uh, Julie. And uh, Hafsa is a moat legend. That's the highest uh, level that you can be on my Patreon. Kids can't vote, drink alcohol, or get married before 18. So how on God's green earth can they mutilate themselves before then, indeed? Terry says, it's a disgrace that children are subjected to an agenda adults of a dubious mentality have dreamt up and unbelievably are rewarded with a platform instead of legal proceedings. The West truly is a lost cause and an empire on the precipice. And Derek Reed says, it's a total disgrace the way the woke society are becoming. I know a parent who was dressing her two-year-old son in pink dresses. And hey presto, the boy is 10 years old and now a girl. There is no way that poor wee guy had any clue what he was at two years old. Professor Marandi from the University of Tehran has educated us all many, many times on the mother of all talk shows. But when you look at the audience numbers, nobody ever gets tired of his quiet and exact eloquence. And I'm glad to say he's back on the show with us this evening. Professor, thanks again for joining us. We will look more widely uh, at, the, at the global situation. But if I can start uh, in your own neck of the woods, uh, are the talks on nuclear questions between Iran and the United States going to happen? Will they ever restart? Or will this be just another casualty? It's very difficult to say. Uh, the good news is that the United States uh, put aside its preconditions for the prisoner swap. And so the Iranian prisoners and the American prisoners were released, and so were Iranian assets which were effectively stolen by the Americans, assets that were both in uh, South Korea as well as in Iraq and elsewhere. A bit less, I think, than $20 billion were released. So. The fact that the Americans put aside preconditions, allowed this prisoner swap to take place and to have yeah, Iranian assets released shows that changes are taking place. Those changes, of, of course, are largely, in my opinion, due to the heightened confrontation with uh, Russia and with China and the fact that the Americans simply have too much on their plate. Uh, but in any case, it is a good sign whether that translates into a breakthrough at the nuclear talks that remains to be seen. Yes, but when will we see it? I mean, is this something that's in the long grass and we'll know if it happens? Or are there any dates, any schedules that we can measure as having been met or missed? Well, exchanges, uh, messages being exchanged, are being exchanged between the two sides. So indirect talks between Iran and the United States do take place. And of course, the Iranians are talking with the Europeans. I'd like to very briefly just remind your audience what happened in the past. In 2015, Iran and the P5 plus one, which included the United States and its European partners, they signed a nuclear deal. 
And from day one, the Americans violated the deal under Obama. And as the Obama administration moved forward, they increasingly violated uh, their side of the bargain. And so did the Europeans alongside the Americans. Whereas the Iranians from day one, they were very strict about all of their commitments. And the International Atomic Energy Agency repeatedly, I think 15 times maybe, uh, stated that the Iranians are uh, committed to all of their obligations. And then, of course, Trump left the deal. Biden decided despite promising to return the deal to the deal he never did and he continues with the so-called maximum pressure sanctions which are targeting iranian women and children but in any case when the new iranian administration came to power the talks were revived in vienna and i was in vienna in vienna for the talks they were very close to deal after weeks of uh, negotiations and ultimately, at the last day of the talks in Vienna, the EU gave a uh, a text to all of the delegations who were going home. The Iranians took that text. It met Iran's requirements, except for two or three small points, three small points. The Iranians made some changes, three changes, sent it back to the EU. And then Joseph Borrell said that the Iranian demands are reasonable. At that point, we thought we had a deal because Borrell is an ally of the United States. But the Americans delayed their response. Then they gave a really uh, a non-response. And it was because of the midterm elections in the U.S. The Biden team was afraid of Trump resurgence uh, or resurging his or his supporters gaining power in the Senate and in Congress. So they delayed, and then we had the riots in Iran. The Americans and the Europeans miscalculated. They thought something was going to happen in Iran. And so all of that was, we were delayed for a long time. So we really had a deal, but the Americans just couldn't take the final step. And today we are still where we were. But there, since the, the prisoner swap took place, the Iranian assets were released. And the, as I said, the Americans removed their precondition. That is a positive sign. So it is possible that we may have a big breakthrough in the in the in the future, but nothing is for certain because, as I said in the past, the Americans were unwilling to take that very last step. Why bother, uh, Professor? Um, you've got your prisoners. You've got the stolen funds returned to you. Uh, you have uh, closer and closer relations with the rising part of the world, uh, why bother with the part of the world that's sinking? Well, that is a case that is being made by a part of the Iranian political establishment. They're saying that Iran has joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. More importantly, for economic purposes, it's now joined BRICS. And Iran has improved ties with Central Asian countries, neighbors in the Persian Gulf. And as you pointed out, they've signed a deal or they've had a deal with the Americans to exchange prisoners and uh, have their assets released. However, the Iranians are still hoping that the United States and the Europeans will come to their senses and they will be prepared to have some sort of reasonable relationship with Iran. But 
time is not on the side of the Americans. It's not on the side of the Europeans. They have too many problems. They have problems with Russia. They have problems with China. They're losing influence in Latin America and Africa. Even in our region, we see that they, they're having problems maintaining their hegemony. It would be smart for them to change their policy towards Iran, but uh, it is very difficult for them to rethink their relationship with Iran or their absence of a meaningful relationship with the country. Well, you saw what happened when they gave you your money back that they had stolen from you and uh, made this prisoner exchange. Uh, Biden was uh, severely attacked uh, by Republicans, uh, by supporters of Donald Trump, amongst others, uh, who, who made out that, that Biden had actually given you this money as a gift. Uh, ignoring that it was your money that they had stolen. I mean, you couldn't make it up, but they did. Well, George, one of the things about the United States is that once they go down a road, they it's very difficult for them to go back. You know as well as I, you know better than I, than that when apartheid South Africa was in place, Nelson Mandela, when he was in prison, uh, the United States considered him a terrorist, and the ANC, the African National Congress, as a terrorist organization. Apartheid collapsed. President Mandela, Mr. Mandela became President Mandela. He was still a terrorist. He retired from office. He was still a terrorist. So was the ANC. And only, I think, in 2012, years after he uh, left power, I think around 2012, did they remove the the ANC and President Mandela from the books. So that's how the United States functions. It's the arrogance of power. That's why they simply can't retreat with regards to their policy in Ukraine or in, with regards to Taiwan or with regards to Iran. It's very difficult. I think a, lot, a large part of it has to do with the arrogance of power. It has to do with empire. It has to do with this sense of exceptionalism that prevents them from being able to take a step back and to shift gear, to change policy, and to behave in a different way because they look down at countries like Iran. It's, it's, very, it's almost impossible for them to come to respect uh, countries like Iran. One of the difficulties they're having is with uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, it was a major part of the U.S. government's plan to be able to go into the next presidential election uh, with a rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Israel, recognition, uh, Saudi Arabia joining the laughably called Abrahamic uh, Accords, uh, sacrilege actually. Uh, but the Saudis are refusing. Uh, the Crown Prince, MBS, or whatever his other faults, uh, is doing something of a good job uh, in, in altering course, a course which they've been on since their very foundation uh, in relation to American politics. Is that how it's seen from Tehran? It does seem that so far, uh, Mohammed bin Salman is sort of hedging his bets, that he sees that the United States is on the decline, like many others, and therefore he wants to improve ties with Russia, 
with China, with Iran. And uh, also Mohammed bin Salman does not love the Biden team or Biden himself. So he does have a vested interest in waiting out Biden and perhaps even by keeping the price of oil up to hurt Biden for the upcoming presidential election. Of course, there are talks going on between the United States and uh, Saudi Arabia about some sort of deal, especially with regards to Israel, the Israeli regime. We don't know where that's going, but without a doubt, we have seen a change in the behavior of Saudi Arabia towards the United States, regardless of whether there's going to be some sort of deal with the Israeli regime or not, uh, because there's a lot of talk, but we don't see it happening yet. But uh, there is a change, and I think it's we've seen it happen in Africa, Niger, and the, the changes that are taking place there. In, in the Persian Gulf region, other countries are also rethinking their ties. Latin America, it's the, the whole global south or the non-Western world is definitely uh, becoming more uh, cautious about their relationship with the United States, their future with the United States. They feel that the United States cannot put some for some of their client regimes. They can't they feel that they can't be protected. And uh, for other countries, they they want to um, they want to have better relations with others because they see changing taking change taking place. That's that's very clear in our part of the world. If we regard uh, a position of no war, no peace as as the midpoint, how would you calibrate the state of relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia today? Better than that, I suspect, better than no war, no peace, but how much better? Yes, it is important. It is very important. The Persian Gulf is a very sensitive region. It's perhaps in some ways the most sensitive region in the world because if there's insecurity here, the whole global economy would collapse. Uh, Saudi Arabia has traditionally been supporting extremist groups like Wahhabi groups. Uh, they supported the extremism that we saw rise in Afghanistan in the, in the 1980s and the 1990s, Al-Qaeda or Al-Qaeda. And, you know, it grew in Syria and in Libya, uh, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, other countries in the Persian Gulf, and of course, Turkey had a huge role to play in the rise of these uh, extremist groups in Syria. And of course, they still exist in northern Syria because the, the, the Turks are continue to support al-Qaeda al and among others. So uh, Saudi Arabia has done a lot uh, to to uh, to support these groups, and they've caused huge uh, problems uh, for the whole region. So the, the, the less tensions in the Persian Gulf region, the less incentive there is for Saudi Arabia to support such groups. Mohammed bin Salman, it would seem, by nature, is not a big fan of those groups anyway. So regardless of what he did to Jamal Khashoggi or to uh, Qatar or to the former prime minister of uh, Lebanon or the war in Yemen, he a positive uh, element of his leadership has been that he has distanced himself from these extremist Wahhabi uh, Takfiri groups. So Iran would like to see better relations, not only because it's good for security across the region and it will weaken, but also because 
this region, if it wants to develop, countries in the Persian Gulf and in the and West West Asia, they have to be able to do business, trade. They have to be able to at least have some sort of relative trust towards one another. And of, and of course, there are many opportunities. The North-South corridor that Iran and Russia uh, are is developing uh, this is important to link because it will link Russia to the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean. The Saudis can be, make benefit of that. They can do trade with Russia. They can do trade with the uh, with Central Asian countries as well. So there is a lot that is happening, and the Saudis could be a part of that. And of course, the Iranians also have a lot of interests economically, culturally, religiously in having good relations with Saudi Arabia as well. Finally, Dr. Uh, Professor, uh, your president was in New York for the uh, General Assembly. Uh, a hooligan sought to disrupt his speech, but was unceremoniously ejected from the hall. Quite extraordinary behavior at the United Nations, uh, I must say. Uh, did he, do you think, take the temperature in America? I mean, you're in a difficult situation in Iran. Uh, almost uh, whoever wins between Biden and Trump, uh, if that is the uh, final uh, lineup, uh, it's not good for Iran. Both of them have committed egregious crimes uh, against Iran. I'm wondering then if you're kind of hoping, like I am, that Robert F. Kennedy might make a decent showing. How, how do you think people in Iran view the upcoming presidential poll? Well, if Robert F. Kennedy is able to um, leave the Democratic Party and uh, step forward as an independent, he'll still have major problems because there are at least 10 states that will almost certainly not uh, allow him to um, uh, gather vo votes. Uh, there, it's a very difficult process in the United States to get on the ballot in this, across the country, but in some states it's more difficult than others. So he really has a very small outside chance. And as you know, recently he's become very hawkish and supportive of the Israeli regime, which I find very odd, uh, taking into account the rest of his policies. They they they, they don't match at all, but. So let's put him aside momentarily. It doesn't really matter, as you point out, if it's Trump or Biden when it comes to foreign policy, uh, at least in our part of the world and most of the global south. Maybe with regards to the war in Ukraine, there would be a difference. But elsewhere, I think there's not really that much uh, of a difference between the two. But as you pointed out at the beginning of the interview, the changes that are taking place, the rise of BRICS, the rise of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the shifting balance of power, which is taking place at a very rapid pace. And thanks to Western policies, it's speeding up. The, the war in Ukraine, I think, is pushing the change that we were all expecting and seeing in previous years. It's pushing it forward much faster than we'd ever seen before. It's quite stunning how thing, how rapidly things are changing. So I think that for Iran, the future does look much better. Actually, in the last quarter, uh, the Iranian e economy grew by 6.2%. Iran's relations with China, with India, with Russia, 
are improving rapidly. So the situation in general for Iran is much better. And I'm here. I'm going to you know I'm uh, I think it is significant. You made the uh, you you were speaking about the Israeli regime uh, and their ambassador to the UN and how he tried to protest against President Raisi during his speech and he was expelled from the hall, which was a, a which was quite extraordinary. But I think even that is symbolic. It is revealing in that the Israelis are losing. I I, could, I believe that the Israelis are becoming increasingly nervous about their future. It's, I mean, this is sort of symbolic, and that's why he, his erratic behavior, I think, is sort of revealing. But when you look at the media in Israel, when you see what's going on, the divisions in Israel, how Israel, the Israeli regime is becoming unpopular in Europe and in North America, especially among many young Jews, I think that does not bode well for the regime. And uh, that uh, lack of self-confidence, you know, the regime that used to be, you know, have the invincible army and they were in, you know, they they were the, the regional power, they dominated the region, at least that's what we were told, that is no longer the case. And I think it's, therefore, it is going to be, that itself is going to be, be ultimately uh, an incentive, this weakness in Tel Aviv it's going to create a greater incentive in Europe and North America to to rethink their policy towards Iran. The world is tilting away from the West. They need countries like Iran uh, because of what they've done to Russia and China. And uh, the Israeli regime is having a much more difficult time than before in isolating Iran. So although I don't want to, I'm not, I'm not naive, I don't think we're going to have good relations with the United States or the Europeans anytime soon. But the world is changing in in uh, in in a big way, but also in a in a subtle way simultaneously too. Professor, thank you as always for a wonderful tour of the horizon, both in the Middle East and beyond. A legend on the line, Sarkar in Glasgow on NATO. Go ahead, Sarkar. George, today I call, I don't know whether I'm calling because I'm angry or I'm sad. Angry because seeing the repeated mistakes of NATO, on and on, going on and on like clockwork, trying to provoke wars. Angry for that. Sad because there are some people who still believe NATO is a force for good because they learn nothing from Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan. They learn nothing from Ukraine. They learn nothing from the latest development. That is with what is happening in Kosovo and Serbia. George, believe me, this People who don't know, people who think that NATO only intervened, that these countries are mentioned, they don't know what they did in Yugoslavia in 1994-1993. They don't know that. And they still believe what NATO is doing is good. Kosovo and Serbia, Kosovo is a part of Serbia. I personally believe, and history proves it. Kosovo has been trying for separatism, but they don't know that in in the land of Kosovo, which they call an independent Kosovo, there's so many Serbs over there. There has been a bit of fraction between them, which happens in every country. But for NATO to say that we'll now send our troops over there because they believe that the Serbs are going to take or uh, are literally stifling the Kosovans and not letting them gain independence, George, that doesn't augur well. Every country who has been 
neutral or saying or expose the hypocrisy of Ukraine or even being remotely associated with Russia for trade deals. They are being chastised. They are being humiliated. This Kosovo wound has been opened up again. I don't know what the future would be, George. I'd like to hear your views. Well, uh, I, I think uh, that you should look on the bright side. The result of the election in Slovakia will not be the last such election. There's more than a million people on a demonstration in Warsaw in Poland today, all over East and Central Europe, all over Germany, and eventually all over France, probably not all over Britain, because we are backward in coming forward in that regard, but all over Europe, and I believe in North America, in the United States at least, in the and it will crystallize in the elections next year, uh, people are comprehensively rejecting the NATO government sacrifice of their own national interests and the prosperity and prospects of their own people in order to serve the diktat of the gerontocratic early onset Alzheimer patient sitting in the White House. People instinctively feel this is not right. This is not wise. This is not the proper use of our resources. And it might lead to disaster. That's why I believe when the Russian government in the form of uh, Medvedev responded to Grant Shapps's cretinistic idiocy in the Daily Telegraph by making plain that Russia would regard not just any British military forces in Ukraine as a legitimate and legal target, they would be target number one. They would be the target of every Russian gun, missile, rocket, bomb, until they had been destroyed. I believe when Medvedev made that point on social media early this morning, that Rishi Sunak, and his mandarins in Whitehall took fright. Now, of course, I'm not in second place to anyone in supporting Serbia in relation to this Kosovan question. And there is no doubt at all that NATO, failing in one area, is seeking to inflame a political situation in another. Kosovo is Serbia. It will always be Serbia. The world will never recognize the breakaway of Kosovo. The Serbian government will never, could never recognize the theft of a part of their own country any more than you or I, Sarka, could accept that a thief could come in and take over the ground floor of our house. And we live upstairs in the top floor in cramped conditions, whilst they cavort downstairs in the best rooms in the house. You think we'd ever accept that? Well, that's what you'd be asking Serbia to accept, and they never, ever will. Captain Blimp on Assange says, I keep saying this, why doesn't the Australian government just give Julian diplomatic status? He will be able to go home without hindrance. And Frank Carlyle says, Responding to the Sycamore Tree story, Costner was the worst Robin Hood in cinematic history. Who's the one I'm thinking of on TV? Was it Richard Green 
is a name that's in my mind. Uh, Vijay says, there are many sycamore trees where I live, and it's known as Sycamore Lane. A lot of people are sycamore, sycamore stories. So let's go on to Prince the Legend in Texas on Canada. How's that for internationalism? On you go, Prince. Hey, George. Good evening or good afternoon. Um, so I have uh, one slight thing I disagree with you on, but like I said, I've always watched you a great time. I have utmost admiration for you. Um, so I look at the Nazi thing a little bit differently. You see, the Western government has never really had a problem with Nazism. It's just always a, you know, I think the main reason why these guys never really liked Hitler was because he went against that global agenda. It's not they were cool with it. I mean, Churchill slaughtered a million people in India, slaughtered a million people in, in Kenya. So this people, uh, 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 the Gaul did the same thing in Algeria. So they have never had a problem with genocide or the other stuff. It's just always been um, something which they use to scare people, which this whole Nazi thing. In America, you can't even talk about anything. They even accuse black people of being Nazis. They accuse everybody of being Nazis, except when it's actual Nazis, then they fund them, they sponsor them. So it's not even a mistake. It's not even something which was the, now they pretend it's a mistake. It's not a mistake. They know exactly what they were doing. They never, Nazis, after the Second World War, they took a bunch of them. You think they just smuggled them to Argentina by mistake? They took a few scapegoats, tried them in Nuremberg, and then the, the main ones actually incorporated them into Western government. They were very in a very high places. So Nazism has always been part of, I mean, has always been part of the Western uh, ideology. Um, I want to skip to the second point, which is about... Well, look, uh, Prince, Prince, no, I, I don't have time for your second point because your first point was so very good. I want to quit while we are ahead because of the hour. Uh, a good and clever friend of mine was just saying to me this very morning that in the United States, there are thousands of Holocaust memorials, and quite rightly so. The Holocaust, the greatest crime in human history, in the sense that its intention was uh, to physically annihilate every single person uh, of uh, the Jewish religion, every single one. This genocide failed because of the Red Army, because of the victories of the Russian Soviet forces in the Second World War. And if that victory had not happened, uh, then the Holocaust would have continued. But to go back to my friend's point, there are thousands of memorials in the United States to the Holocaust that took place in Europe. But there are no memorials to the Holocaust perpetrated by the Americans themselves against their native population. And precious few, even in high-heeled jacks, lipstick-wearing, progressive outpost of Canada. And in Latin America, hardly any at all. But a hundred million, one hundred million original Americans were wiped out by European colonialism in the Americas from Canada to Chile. You try finding a memorial to that particular Holocaust in the United States, you'll look long and 
hard. There's a legend on the line. Last call of the evening. It is Norma in Bristol. Norma, what would you like to say? Well, only a couple of points because it's very late now. Um, I just wanted to say I enjoyed the um, ex-wife of Muhammad Ali. I thought she was refreshing and she had a few Wasn't she wonderful? Yeah. Yeah, she was. She was. And then just quickly, we did actually, like you, stay up and we watched the fight of Cassius Clay against Sonny Liston years ago. But you did say you wanted an update on my husband. So I'm just going to tell you that we visited him today, but he has to be moved entirely now by a hoist, which is, you know, sad deterioration. And we're waiting to see if that government money for three months has been agreed with no by Tuesday so they can move him to a nursing home. But, you know, after that, who knows? It would just be a blimmin' scandal if we had to pay or have means tested if he lived. We had to pay, you know, for any money after three months if he was still alive. So that's my update. Well, it's a very eagerly awaited update, uh, albeit sad news, uh, for all of us here at the Mother of All Talk Shows. And I'm sure all of the audience around the world, our hearts are with you and with your husband at this very difficult time in your lives after such a long and happy marriage together. God bless you, Norma, and preserve your health. Uh, unfortunately, it's the end of the show. I hope you enjoyed it tonight. I thought we had a couple of cracking guests. We had new callers. Uh, dealing with some of the most important issues in the world today and the sycamore tree. That's all we've got time for, but the good news is, God willing, I'll be back on Wednesday at the slightly later time of 9 p.m. UK. So bring another viewer with you, if you will, so that we can grow and grow this open university of the airwaves. And follow me, support me on patreon.com forward slash George Galloway. Why don't you? Good night. <laughs>